Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, California's approach to recovery and resilience, centering equity and job quality. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States and the implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country. I want to know our deep appreciation to the Ford Foundation, Prudential Financial, the Walmart Foundation, the Cerna Foundation, and MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. Our work at the Economic Opportunities Program focuses on advancing a more just and inclusive economy by expanding individuals' opportunities to connect to quality work, to participate in business ownership, and to build the economic stability necessary to pursue opportunity. The issues of racial equity and job quality have always been a focus of our work and have been growing in importance over the past decade. In the long recovery following the 2008 recession, we saw unemployment fall to historic lows, particularly among black workers, and we saw stock markets reach new highs. But we did not see working people gain much ground in economic terms. Income and wealth inequality reached historic levels, housing, healthcare, and education costs soared while earnings flatlined. Household budgets simply couldn't keep up and meager safety net programs hardly filled the gap. We became more economically divided than ever with a disproportionate number of black, indigenous, and Latino households falling on the wrong side of that economic divide. And these are the households that have been hit hardest in our current crises. The pandemic and associated economic fallout have shown the light on the tenuousness of work and well-being for the least well-paid. And it has also highlighted the degree to which our economy and society is dependent on poverty wage work of essential workers. As we seek to recover from our current crises, how should we rebuild in ways that reduce these damaging economic and racial divides? What should we do differently to improve the quality of jobs and the quality of lives for all working people? At the Economic Opportunities Program, we were thrilled to learn that California and its work on jobs and economic recovery was centering uh, considerations of racial equity and was focused on the need to improve job quality. As our bellwether state, California has long been grappling with these issues of equity and job quality. California entered the new millennium with a diverse population that does not have a dominant demographic group in the majority. The rest of the country should be similarly diverse by mid-century. California is home to some of our wealthiest and most innovative companies, but also to legions of working people who are struggling to afford the soaring cost of living in the state. So California is really out, out in front in dealing with some of these challenges, and it's now stepping out to find new solutions. On May Day 2019, California's governor established the Future of Work Commission and charged it with designing a new social compact for California based on an expansive vision for economic equity. This April, the Jobs and Recovery Task Force was established to build on this effort while tackling the immediate and urgent challenges of restarting the California economy. So we're thrilled today to have the opportunity to hear from two leaders who have been deep in this work. Julie Sue, Secretary of California's Labor and Workforce Development Agency, and Angela Glover-Blackwell, founder and residence at PolicyLink. Thank you both so very much for joining us today. 
And before we start our conversation with them, I wanna just quickly review our technology. All of the attendees today are muted, but we welcome your questions. Please use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions or comments. We're thrilled with the participation in today's event, and we thank you to the many of you who um, submitted your questions in advance, and we'll, we'll try in the time we have to get to as many questions as we can. Um, you can also upvote questions you see people submitting if you're interested in those. We also encourage you to tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. And if you have any technical issues during this webinar, you can chat with Economic Opportunities Program, or you can email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website following today's event. And now I'm really thrilled to introduce our moderator for today's conversation, Megan McCarty Carino. Megan is the workplace culture reporter for Marketplace, where she covers everything from gender and racial equity issues to the gig economy and workplace health. Um, and she's also a California native, currently based in Los Angeles. So Megan's just the perfect person to moderate today's conversation. So Megan, really happy to have you with us today and over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm actually back in the Marketplace headquarters in downtown LA today. You're in the background for the first time since March 13th. Uh, never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined, you know, what covering the workplace for Marketplace would have come to mean uh, when I joined a little over a year ago during, you know, as Maureen mentioned, this period of record low unemployment. But so many of the issues that have become, you know, so painfully exacerbated by the pandemic were there before, you know, every time we were reporting on these really positive indicators at Marketplace, it was always a little bit of whiplash because I was talking every day to workers who were struggling to pay skyrocketing housing prices or to manage work and family, you know, who were routinely went to work sick or endangered their pregnancy because they had no paid leave. Uh, and, you know, we know that these burdens then fell hardest on women and people of color. And we're seeing, you know, that trend just intensified today. So in some ways, the ways this disaster has really laid bare so much of what wasn't working for American workers, uh, I'm really excited to kind of hear what our guests have to say about a possible way forward. So I'd just like to start kind of asking each of you a bit about your work and what brought you to this work. Julie, you've been working on addressing issues in the workplace long before you came to head the California Labor and Workplace Development Agency. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to your current role and exactly what the agency does? Yes, Megan, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to you and Maureen for the excellent framing of this conversation. So I spent my career fighting alongside working people for basic protections in the workplace, actually in Los Angeles, Megan, so um, kindred spirits. Uh, these basic protections include minimum wage, overtime, the right to breaks, um, and enforcement of and the ability to speak up without fear and retaliation, as well as the rights of all workers, regardless of immigration status. Um, and then as an attorney, I also litigated cases um, against race discrimination in employment and in education. So as we have seen throughout the crises that we face, these issues are really fundamental to questions of equity, justice, and economic security. 
Currently, we face not just one major challenge, but three that are forcing us to react, reinvent, and recover in new and different ways. One is obviously the COVID-19 public health crisis. Two is the unprecedented levels of unemployment. It's just one symptom of the pandemic-induced economic crisis. And three is the exposure of the blatant racism and the specifically the continued anti-Blackness that's ingrained in our society, in our health system, in our economic structures, and in our institutions of power. So as has already been said, um, Megan, the, you know, the, this pandemic has really further exposed and exacerbated those fractures in our society along the lines of race, class, and gender. During the COVID-19 pandemic, workers of color have been overrepresented in many of the low-wage jobs that are most vulnerable to layoffs, um, including hospitality. Uh, and at the same time, Black and Latino workers make up a disproportionate share of the essential workers who have faced additional health and safety risks. Um, black workers, the studies show, have also been more likely to face retaliation for raising COVID-19 safety concerns at work. And so all of these questions about, you know, workplace protections, like you mentioned, paid leave, also, you know, childcare, who needs childcare, who are the caregivers, as well as, um, you know, those who, those who are most negatively impacted when, when schools close, um, all of these are part of the, um, of the challenges that we face right now. So as Labor Secretary, um, I oversee several California departments, and I really like to think of our response to these crises in three ways. One is that we ensure that benefits are paid to the unemployed, making sure that unemployment insurance benefits, other pandemic-related benefits are paid out, um, and that's been a real challenge, not just here in California, but across the nation. Uh, the second is ensuring the health, safety, and welfare of workers who are employed. That's, you know, Cal OSHA, the Labor Commissioner enforcing basic standards in the workplace, which you know, they become more important in times of crises, right, not less. And the third is the challenge um, looming before us, which is um, workforce development and reemployment. And now we're not just talking about reemploying people, you know, one by one matching. We're talking about the need to reemploy people and looking at the kinds of jobs they're going to be reemployed into, which will define our economy going forward. Um, and that's really our third uh, um, and big challenge. And, you know, it's a privilege to work on these issues, but also a really, really um, difficult time. I think we'll meet these challenges, but I'm excited to be part of a conversation where we're um, talking about what California is doing to lead the way. And Angela, you're the founder in residence at PolicyLink, where you've really focused on advancing racial and economic equity in all sorts of arenas. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you founded PolicyLink and what exactly the organization does? Thank you, Megan. Uh, Maureen, that was an excellent framing and always happy to join a, a stage with Julie. My whole adult life has been devoted to trying to build a fully inclusive society and to achieve racial justice. I've been an organizer, public interest lawyer, foundation executive, community builder. But 21 years ago, I started PolicyLink to try to bring all of those approaches to change together under a banner that was explicit about race and that upped the ante in terms of how to be able to build a fully inclusive society. Equality and equal rights and equal opportunity are certainly important and this nation has fallen way short in terms of achieving that. But it had become clear that just talking about equality, only talking about equality was not gonna really solve the problem that we needed to ask 
what do we want for everybody? And then what do the investments have to be in order to get there? And that's equity. Just and fair inclusion into a society in which all, including low-income people of color, all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. And so when we started PolicyLink uh, in January of 1999, we wanted to bring several things forward. One was the extraordinary voice and wisdom of local leaders. Local leaders are national leaders. They are the ones who are solving the nation's problems. And yet local leaders are the last ones to be consulted as national policy is put forward, usually only brought in to add a bit of color to a policy that was already fully developed. We felt we needed to be doing policy from the ground up for people who were struggling with, with racial issues, with how the distribution of resources was not even designed to be able to achieve what people wanted. Bringing forward those local voices. Understanding that we live in a nation in which where you live is a proxy for opportunity. So focusing on race, but also focusing on place. And then focusing on the infrastructure investments that have to actually invest in places so that the people who live there can fully participate. And understanding that through it all, we were coming up against a nation that was founded on a narrative that reinforced a hierarchy of human value. And you couldn't pretend that that wasn't there. You had to talk about it. You had to bring it forward. You had to know that you were pushing against the narrative and not just policies. And so all of those things helped us to form policy link, helped us to develop a deep agenda in all the areas that I talked about that could create a policy platform, and then this hits. You've described it, Julie's described it, Maureen referred to it, the laying bare of all the injustices and problems and inequalities and dysfunctions of society. It wasn't that people of color didn't know about it. It wasn't even that a lot of people who were white didn't know about it, but people of color were able to put their heads down and act like they had to work without removing all the, the narratives, and other people just thought, we'll get better if we just change our hearts. But what we see now is that we won't get better at just changing our hearts. We're gonna have to change everything. And so this is an exciting moment to be uh, in policy, to be alive, to tell you the truth, because the possibilities are so great. But it is certainly an exciting time to be in California that has crossed the threshold of being majority people of color decades ago. And clearly they have to have an understanding now that California will not thrive if the people who make up California don't thrive. Julie, let's talk about the task force on business and jobs recovery that California has convened, uh, of which Angela is a part. Who are the other stakeholders that are a part of this task force and, and what are your guiding principles? Thank you. Yes, the governor appointed a task force on business and jobs recovery in April. There are 108 leaders from business, labor, community-based organizations, um, uh, philanthropy, um, the tech world, and we are made up uh, of five subcommittees ranging from climate to small business to the subcommittee that Angela and I co-chair called Economic Equity and Workforce. And I do want to note that when the governor announced the task force, Angela was one of the members that he highlighted as embodying uh, both the substance and the spirit of what we want to accomplish. So the goal of the task force is really immediate recovery, 
but we're looking at recovery as something different than uh, you know, going back to where we came from. Um, I often say we wanna recover better than we entered. Uh, so we're focused on a high road recovery that can put California back to work, that will honor the governor and this whole administration's commitment to equity and you know, what he always calls California for all. And that really recognizes that a strong economy has to be premised on equity, on quality jobs, on making sure that no one is left behind. So what does that mean? A high road recovery rejects the idea that any job is a good job. And I think that there is a mistake that is often um, repeated in times of crisis that, well, we just need any jobs. People should be grateful for anything that they get to do which is premised on the idea that working poverty is an inevitable characteristic of our economy. Uh, it's just not true. We reject that and we are intentional about building an economy that is premised on um, eliminating working poverty and making sure that people who want to work can work and can work in jobs that are worthy of, of, um, of their talent and of, and of all of California. It also involves building pathways into those jobs, being clear, uh, as Angela mentioned, you know, have been historic and including present day inequities to access and we need to be deliberate about breaking those down. Um, that is through education and training but not just through education and training. Right In California, a full so about a third of California workers make less than $15 an hour. That is about a third of our California economy, this is before the pandemic, right, that we're working in what could be characterized as low wage jobs a full 20% of those workers had a college degree. So it's not just about more education and skills, although that has to be part of the solution. I just think we need to um, you know, stop repeating the idea that if you just give more skills that somehow equity will be, um, will be inevitable and that uh, opportunities will be distributed more equally. We have to be intentional about that. Um, we also want to focus on increasing, you know, worker share of prosperity, um, as well at the same time as we focus on competitiveness. And a key part of that is making sure that workers have a voice in, uh, in, in the workplace. Um, and another part of this is investing in underserved regions and communities. Uh, you know, Governor Newsom says all the time, California is a nation state, but each region has its own challenges, its opportunities, its abilities, its skills, its needs, and we need to pay attention to those. And so the uh, task force is very um, cognizant of that California is not a monolith and we need to look at infrastructure growth, resilience, and, um, and uh, economic recovery uh, region by region. Um, and finally, you know, a big part of, um, of the task force is uh, what Angela led the way in articulating, which is a, a body of principles for equity and inclusion um, that puts people first that is explicit about racial and ethnic discrimination and disparities, as you've seen throughout the pandemic, right? That, you know, we in California have been um, very much open about the disparities on the health side, on the economic side, and we're gonna be really deliberate about that on the recovery side as well. Um, and so looking at how, um, you know, how those, we have to infuse everything we do, all of our solutions uh, with those kinds of equity principles. So that's very much a part of, uh, of, of the task force and, and you know, very much again, a part of what Angela brings um, and, what, uh, and what the governor is very, very much committed to. Angela, do you want to tell us a bit more about your role on the task force and kind of what you are hoping the task force can accomplish and your subcommittee particularly? 
Well, I was delighted to be asked to be on the task force because one of the things that equity really has forced, helped, induced so many of us who wanted a more just society to understand is that you don't get there without a focus on the economy. The economy isn't just something that we can try to join as we try to be included because it's not a good economy. The way that it has been focused, the way it has put profits first, the way it's based on extraction, the way it's based on exploitation, all of those things mean that you have to have an economic analysis if you really are serious about trying to achieve a just and equitable society. And we've been talking about that a lot. We haven't just been talking about it in abstract terms, but Manuel Pastor and I about a decade ago really put forward a notion that as we looked at the shifting demographics, and we looked at the problems of inequality, particularly the toxic inequality, this baking in poverty, um, making it very difficult to have a robust middle class and making economic mobility all but extinct, that we had to look at those things together. And it turns out that the equity agenda was actually leading to the right kind of growth frame. We said equity is the superior growth model. And so because of that, we've been looking for multiple ways to be able to join with people who only think about jobs in the economy to be able to blend these notions together. So I was pleased to join. I was even more pleased uh, once I did join to find that there were so many people who were curious about and open to thinking about how do we lead with equity. The governor was really quite magnificent in the way that he underscored that this uh, had to be as much about equity as anything else. And so people knew coming in that the rhetoric was there. But after they joined, we, it became more than rhetoric. It became, what are the principles that we're going to use? And as we have gone through uh, the period of being on the task force, we have actually been pushing to make sure that those principles are applied. And so I see my role as one of being a full participant, having to understand what the challenges are for businesses, large and small, understanding what the challenges are for health, both in terms of uh, how we get out of this, but understanding how we got into the situation that we're on and how to blend all these things together. The murder of George Floyd was a, a pivotal moment for the task force because it happened right in the middle of the task force thinking about its role already in a conversation about race, looking at the health impacts, looking at the economy, understanding that black and brown people don't go to work, California doesn't go to work. All of that was a part of what was there. And then came this really uh, heightened racial moment. And so I was pleased that they uh, quickly adopted the principles. Julie started talking about them, putting people first. That's easy to say, hard to do when you're talking about jobs and the economy, particularly when employers are hurting, when the economy seems to be taking everybody down. People just want to get back to work. They just want to open up again, making people stop and ask the question, are our recommendations putting people first? And how do we know that that's making a difference? explicitly talking about race, explicitly understanding discrimination, and talking about how we open jobs, how we frame the challenges, how we make our decisions, so that we're looking to eliminate 
racial discrimination, that we don't put anything back in place, that it is predictable based on the color of someone's skin or the origin of where they've come from, where they're going to be on the economic rungs. We've got to deal with that. But also focusing on places. You heard me say earlier, where you live is a proxy for opportunity. We know where the transportation is going to be inadequate, where the schools are going to be struggling, where the toxics uh, or toxins are going to be prevalent. And so how do we understand all of that, including the kind of um, livelihoods that people have in certain regions, like agricultural regions. And we want to make sure that we are expanding opportunity in those places, not just coming back to what was there, and then making a priority on shared prosperity. The economy that we want is one in which we share prosperity. And therefore, we have to think about economic inclusion in ways that understand the particular challenges of businesses that are small and owned by people of color and women, and how their challenges are different from larger businesses and that we do this opening in a way that gets them the resources that they need to open, but the special attention as well as an outreach effort to make sure that people are aware of the fact that when you think about the businesses you want to support, you want to support the small minority women-owned businesses not just because it's just and fair, but also because those are the people who are employing uh, so many people of color who have been hit first and worst by this and will be the last to come out if we don't make a special effort. So all of those things have been front and center and taken seriously. Uh, these terms, job quality and, and equity, they can mean a lot of different things and sometimes nothing at all, <laughs> depending on the situation. Um, Julie, how would you like the audience to understand what you mean when you talk about job quality? And, and I think the key point, how does California measure success on, on that, those terms? Oh, such an important question. Uh, so job quality has really been a core principle and a guiding light for, um, for us at the labor agency, as well as the administration since, uh, since the beginning, uh, since before this pandemic. And back, in, as uh, Maureen announced at the beginning, in May of 2019, the governor announced a future of work commission. And the idea was to really look at what jobs in California could be in the future. There was a, um, you know, analysis there of what uh, how, what the intersection between technology and work, but the whole idea of, you know, what jobs could be um, embodies the, the notion that, you know, th it's not preordained, right? It's not that, like, you know, the economy is headed in a certain direction. We just all got to, you know, buckle up and, and ride along, but that we have a say. We can shape what that economy looks like. And so um, he appointed an extraordinary group of individuals who make up that commission. That work continues, um, and um, the idea is to um, reimagine a social compact for work and workers in California. And so a key part of that is job quality. So what does that mean? One of the things I want to say about that is that it may not mean the exact same thing at all times and in all places and in all industries. And that's okay, right? Many people come back with, well, you know, if we can't come up with one universal definition, then we just can't do this. That's not true. And so it's important enough for us to think about what are the basic elements of job quality, right? It's certainly includes, um, you know, uh, wages that lift people out of poverty, right? It certainly includes something around health
health and safety. Nobody should have to put their life at risk to go to work. Everybody should come home safely at the end of the day. Um, it, in, it includes an element of um, mobility, of satisfaction, of impact, of growth. And so we're looking at job quality in all of these terms, not just economic, but very, but, but human. And, um, and so um, much of what the, the commission's work will continue to do is to um, put some meat on those bones. What, how exactly do we find, do we define job quality in California? But I often say, you know, we would love for California to be known not just for, um, you know, its tech, its entertainment, our beaches and our good weather, but also for quality jobs. And right now, before the pandemic and certainly after, all of our initiatives, all of our goals are really opportunities to create quality jobs in the communities that need them the most. And to Angela's point, what's so um, you know, really invigorating, even in these tough times, is that we have people like the commission, like the task force, who have been engaged in this effort for some time. And now we're bringing them all together to roll up our sleeves and concretely uh, you know, define what that means. So let me just give a couple of examples of what we've done through the COVID crisis and the economic devastation that has ensued to push job quality. So one is that as the state, right, procurement is one avenue. And so as we have, um, met the numerous needs of Californians during this time, the need for shelter, the need for places to isolate, the need for food delivery. We have added procurement standards to our contracts uh, as we build up uh, testing uh, and other kind of emergency, um, you know, me meeting emergency um, demands. Our procurement standards include fair wages, they include compliance with labor standards, and there's preferences for hiring laid off and other unemployed workers, really trying to meet that, um, you know, workers who face the greatest barriers to employment and the many structural reasons why. How do we address those things? A second um, uh, initiative that we've had is we've had the privilege to work closely with Saru Jayaraman. She's also a member of the Future of Work Commission and um, developing a program called High Road Kitchens. And here was, you know, we stepped in uh, as the pandemic was beginning, seeing that many of the small businesses that Angela talked about were in jeopardy. And so how could we help support them not closing down, therefore also maintaining jobs and really focusing, investing on those employers, those restaurants that we're doing right by their workers. And so we helped uh, the, the restaurants to repurpose and, um, and you know, move from their usual operations to creating um, meals that were packaged and delivered to, to people in need, which included the elderly and also included other low-wage workers. And we helped to leverage some workforce funding for that. Um, we have now 46 high-road kitchens across California um, and you know, kept a, a few hundred restaurant workers on the job um, and, you know, stabilize these businesses that are so key to our economy. Um, also, you know, contact tracing is something people have talked about a lot in relation to the pandemic, right? It's a, it's a way to make sure that we stop the spread. And so we've been working with our partners in public health through the incredible leadership of Dr. Mark Galley, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services here in California, to expand contact tracing throughout the state and making sure that we are hiring from those communities 
where they may not trust government at the outset. They may not want to be traced by someone they don't know. So if we hire from workers in those communities who've been most devastated by COVID, we, uh, we, we, meet, we meet multiple goals, our public health goals and our um, desire to put people um, first when it comes to uh, opportunities for jobs. Um, and finally, we are really trying to reimagine how our workforce system works. Um, we have great workforce boards here in California, um, and we are really trying to work closely with boards to look at um, measuring their work, not just by how many people come through, not just by how many get employed, but by the quality of the job that they get, by the, um, you know, the, the, the impact on their lives in terms of um, getting more mobility and um, get, gaining access to a job they might not have even known existed. And so those are really concrete ways that we make job quality real and, uh, and we're intentional about building that into everything we say about what our economy should be. Angela, you mentioned the influence of, you know, the events of, of the summer around racial justice, uh, you know, the, the influence that that has had on the work of the task force. What kinds of opportunities does this moment, this national moment of reckoning over, over racial justice, what kinds of opportunities does that present to kind of actually make progress on these equity issues? Well, the opportunity is to take what Julie just talked about in terms of the quality jobs and make sure that the people who need those jobs, who are least likely to get really high quality jobs, the people for whom the ladders of opportunity to continue to move up are often non-existent or weak and break, how we actually center the people who are left behind because of racism, current, historical, and predictable, that they are able to fully participate and move forward. Understanding that this nation has a racist history is the first step to people understanding that we have to be conscious of race as we think about building a just society going forward. It's hard for people to grasp this when they are ahistorical in their orientation and in denial about what's right in front of them. What the murder of George Floyd did for millions of white Americans is it made it unavoidable to see state-sponsored violence being perpetuated against a black man because he was black and his life did not matter. This is not a new thing for people who are black. They know it. But for too many people who are white, they just didn't want to see it. But because people were on lockdown, they were sitting in front of their cable televisions hour in and hour out. They all saw it and they saw that police officer looking in the camera, hand in his pocket, casually killing a black man because this is what he does. And you couldn't deny that's what you were looking at. We have to take that insight and apply it to work, jobs, housing, 
education, democratic participation, and understand that same disregard that they witness exists in the workplace, exists in the educational space, exists in the democratic space, exists in the infrastructure investments, and do something different. One of the things that we are concerned about, particularly in California, 75%, I bet it's 75, it was 73% not long ago, but let me just stick with the data I know. At least 73% of all children in California under 18 are of color. Young people in California are of color. This crisis will devastate them for years and years to come. Not only does it mean that they're coming into the workforce without a lot of jobs being there, but that means they don't get started on time. That means that they don't start in the jobs that they were training for. They take whatever they can get. It impacts their lifelong earnings. It impacts their ability to start a family. It even determines what their life expectancy would be. If we care about equity and inclusion and justice and racial equity, we need to place a priority on young people and make sure that we're using public resources and private resources and public policy to get them the start that they deserve. We've got to focus on that and understand that the racial dimensions of discrimination and all of the other things have to be taken into account. You can't just say open it up to people under a certain age. You've got to say what are the challenges for the black community? What are the cha cha challenges for the indigenous and the Latinx community and make sure that they're being addressed. It means that we cannot pretend that just having a transportation system means that everybody's going to have access to it. People of color disproportionately depend on buses and public transit, but they don't have as many riders and so they're cutting back. But yet it's people of color, low income, who are the frontline workers and have to get to work. We have to place a priority on making sure that our public transit system will actually meet those needs. We know who the caregivers are. We know who the frontline workers are. We know who the cleaners are. We don't have to guess where we have to make sure we have living wage jobs to be able to help the people who are going to suffer most. That's what equity requires. Those are the kinds of things that we need to focus on. And we need to take the outrage that we felt about the murder of George Floyd and know that that murder is a slow murder that is happening for black and brown people all across this country in every realm in which they are participants. And if we want to finally move beyond it, it's going to take race consciousness. It's going to take investments that are going a little beyond what we would ordinarily do. And we're going to have to measure how we're doing in terms of how the people who are disproportionately left behind are making progress. Uh, Julie, I know there are so many issues that the task force is, is tackling. There are too many to probably talk about, but I thought we might drill down on one of the initiatives um, called High Road Partnerships that California is undertaking. What is this program and how might they help advance job quality? Great. So yes, you're right. The range of issues is really broad, reflective of obviously the, the range of need. You know, it's everything from um, dealing with you know, broadband and access to broadband, which is squarely right, um, you know, in all the issues that we've just talked about, especially who doesn't have uh, real access, um, how that affects different regions of California, um, to real attention to small businesses and providing small business support. So the task force did launch a campaign around shop local to try to support um, local businesses 
businesses uh, in the economic recovery. But on high road training partnerships, again, something that predates this pandemic, but um, is something we've doubled down on as a solution to many of the challenges. And the idea behind high road training partnerships is that all of our workforce strategies have to start with demand. They have to start with where the jobs are. And I think there's what, what you know, Angela's comment to this conversation really highlights is there's at least two elements to that. One is that there are good jobs already, and we, we need to look at where those jobs are, where they're growing, and ensure that there is equity in those jobs. Who's getting those jobs? Who even knows that they exist? Who's getting the proper training and the access to them? And how do we deliberately break down racial barriers, especially as they apply to African-Americans and Latinos into those jobs? And an example of that is in the state, right? Here, we, we, you know, we want to make sure that we are living by the principles that we espouse for others in California. So the state as an employer um, has um, tens of thousands of good jobs um, with vacancies, and we're being very deliberate, including launching a specific pilot in Los Angeles to ensure that we are um, getting more black and brown candidates for those jobs and candidates who have experienced other kinds of barriers, including um, involvement with the justice system, homelessness, and the like. Um, and then the other piece of that is lifting up the jobs that are not currently good jobs. There's nothing inevitable about any job that makes it a, a, a bad job, a low-wage job, an exploitative job. Oftentimes, as Angela has already highlighted, the jobs that are most exploitative are the ones in which you have uh, people of color working in them, oftentimes women of color working in them, right? But there's nothing about care work or back of the house restaurant work. Um, it, there's nothing inevitable about any of those things, you know, janitorial work that makes them low wage. So we have to be um, really laser focused on um, exploding the notion, right, that some, some of those jobs are just low wage jobs and really figure out how we lift them up. So high road training part partnerships is about doing that. It's about taking employers who are who have good jobs or industries where we can elevate the jobs and creating partnerships, meaning between management and labor, between employers and employees to come together to look at what are the industry needs and how do we train people for those needs and how do we open up the pathways to those jobs. And we have, um, before the pandemic, we had eight pilot uh, high road training partnerships in eight different industries. We're now expanding them. Um, and you know, they, 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 you know, they're gonna be in, they already are in, but they will be in many of the industries that we, that we talk about a lot. They're in care, right? How do we uplift care workers? Um, they are in, uh, in, the, in ports. Uh, in trucking, uh, in construction. There's just a whole range of industries where they are good jobs, we want pathways to them, and we want to train, train people who otherwise would, would not be able to get those jobs for them, or we want to uplift those jobs through these partnerships. And there's a really deliberate focus on workers being at the table to design those training programs, to design the future of those industries, and in attention to um, climate, making sure that all of these efforts um, are also good for um, good for our environment. This goes back to what I said earlier, right? That every 
initiative we have, every policy proposal is an opportunity to create jobs in the communities that need them the most. So when we're talking about building more housing to end the homeless crisis and those who are precariously housed, those we're going to need to build housing and we need to make sure that those that, that the people who build those homes can afford those homes. Um, same with, you know, all of our climate work and, um, you know, clean water, uh, transportation, they're all opportunities for good jobs. And so high road training partnerships is one key strategy to making sure that we build in equity um, into, uh, into that job growth. Um, so just one last quick question before we get to the audience questions. Um, you know, we have a great audience of, of folks who are really engaged on these issues. So I want to ask each of you, you know, what is one quick thing that folks here can do kind of in their own lives to support a, a more fair and just recovery in their own communities? Um, Angela, do you want to start? Sure. Um, Everybody can be in this conversation. This is the time for people to take individual initiative to say, how can I help to keep the conversation going about how we become an anti-racist nation? It is not enough just to say that I am not a racist. People have to say, I am anti-racist. I am working to do everything I can to break down a system that has excluded based on race and made it so difficult for so many people. We need to have that conversation and move forward. We need to not let people get away with um, ignorance. Um, that we have a history in this country and whether it's painful or not, it is a history and we need to hold people accountable for knowing it. The nation that was founded on genocide, stolen land, human bondage and slave labor. And when we got to a certain year, whatever you wanna say, none of that went away. The narrative continued to be there. Help people to understand that history. Ask yourself in everything that you see your community doing, how do we make sure that we are being uh, fully inclusive and advancing racial equity? Uh, when we think of infrastructure, we often think of roads and bridges and public transit, but we also know that the part of the infrastructure has to be the care that people need, whether it's child care or elder care. Part of the infrastructure has to be housing and housing policy and housing availability that allows people to live close to work, to live in dignity, to live in communities that allow them to be able to access opportunity. Have that conversation. And when those things are happening in your local community, ask who's being left behind, who needs to have this investment, and how do we put our resources there? The next thing we need to do is we need to hold our elected officials accountable. We need to have a North Star that we're carrying in our minds about what we want to be as a state, as a nation, as a city, as a village. And when you have an opportunity to put someone in office, ask yourself how that person operates in relationship to where we need to go. Combine our personal values with our, um, with our voting and our democratic participation. I think those are things everybody can do, but people who are lucky enough to be in policy positions, to be elected officials, to be owners of business, understand that it's not just the right thing to do, it is the economically prudent thing to do to be able to build a fully inclusive society that achieves racial equity. It is good for the heart and it is good for the economy and it's good for the democracy. And Julie, what is one thing that, that you would advise folks, you know, to take personal action on these? Uh, do I have to follow that? Um, 
So I, um, well, I, I was going to say, um, and I just want to repeat that it is, uh, it has never been, but I think these moments have really, um, you know, just driven home for everybody. It's, it's not enough to be um, non-racist. Um, you know, we really, really have to um, fight for a, a truly just and equal society um, on the basis of race. And I think being really intentional and laser focused on that in all of, not just in our work, but I think, you know, personally, um, continuing to raise um, the issue of, you know, specifically being, um, you know, embracing the notion of racial justice as the North Star is just so key. I mean, I'll build on uh, what Angela said earlier so eloquently about what the George Floyd um, murder meant, um, not just in that moment, but in terms of what it represents everywhere. I think those who saw the video um, saw that uh, one of the cops who stood by was uh, an Asian American cop. And for me, I think that that's also symbolic of, you know, what is the role of all of us um, in terms of when we speak out, when we intervene, when we demand better, when we use our voices, when we are in that space to um, not just stop something awful from happening, but from actually allowing something um, uh, right and good to happen. And so I would say that everybody has that power, right, in, you know, not just in our workplaces and, and through our, our, our you know, uh, uh, you know, any positions of policymaking or other power, but in all of our interpersonal relationships, I think building in this notion that racial equity is, um, is key to a just society and is how we want to measure um, uh, who we are is just so important. And what we measure determines how we work. It determines what we do. So I think to be really concrete on the, on the labor and workforce side of things, really think about what we're measuring and are we actually creating more opportunities um, that that that, uh, that shows that we're being um, you know that we're breaking down racial barriers in our work. Are we actually um, increasing the numbers of Black and Brown people in our work environments in our programs? Um, I'll say that you know I've been so inspired by the people I've worked with on the task force on the Future of Work Commission who are tireless in raising this theme and making sure that we um, that 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 we're that we're really deliberate and really intentional about that. So I would say that everybody can do that. And then I would just you know I think a, a part and parcel of that is um, that we you know I would ask that we all reject this notion that, um, you know, every job is a good job, right? That people should just be grateful for any job. I think we just stop repeating that. I think that um, is it's harmful um, to our economy. It's also harmful to all of our principles around um, racial equity. And I think we need to start looking at, um, you know, we want to build jobs that any of us would be proud to do, that we would be willing to work for. And so I think that, um, you know, really embracing the notion that job quality is integral to a strong economy, right? That um, inequity is bad for our economy. It's not just bad for workers. I think that's really important in terms of our, our, um, our messaging about what we stand for and also in our embrace of how we do our work. And I want to bring you guys some of the audience questions. Um, first one, how are you thinking about job quality for independent workers in recovery, specifically um, as pertains to workers like day laborers? Right. So, 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 
Sure, I'll say I'll say something briefly about that. I mean, absolutely, right. So day laborers tend to fit into the demographic groups that we've been talking about, right? They're um, largely people of color. Uh, many of them are undocumented, um, and so definitely the idea that we need to make sure that all of our um, our attention to uplifting the quality of work that people get and the protections that they have, I think day laborers are absolutely key to that. Um, another part of that is just that you know the idea of work worker voice being so important, right? Day laborers are um, one of the shining examples, certainly in California, but also across the country of how lifting their voices, demanding, um, uh, you know, day labor centers, demanding certain standards in terms of um, uh, the work uh, that they get was really key in um, lifting up uh, the work in that industry and in raising awareness uh, among employers and hirers uh, about that. So I think that it's, it's a really important example of the, of the value of worker voice and listening to workers who are most directly affected um, for the kinds of things we need to do. Um, the next question is about unemployment insurance. Um, the expansion of unemployment insurance to many more workers has been a big challenge for California and for many states. What are you learning about unemployment insurance in this moment that you would like to see inform permanent changes to our UI system? Oh. So much, Angela. I'm definitely deferring to you on that one. I'll fill in. So, so much. So I, I, I'll say a few things, and I'm sure I will. I will leave some things out. Um, number one is that um, we need to reimagine our unemployment insurance system as a human-centered um, support for people who are going through hard times. That's in everything from you know looking again at the amount of benefits to how we provide those benefits to the ways that states communicate. And I'll just own that in California. You know, uh, we have a long way to go in doing better um, by Californians in terms of just communication about what's happening when you're applying for UI. Um, how do we make it easier to apply, um, easier to get through the process, and easier to get benefits? Um, I'll also say that, you know, our unemployment insurance um, uh, system has shown fractures just like everything else, right? So there are workers who are left out of unemployment insurance benefits. Oftentimes, they're, they're the ones who are you know, most vulnerable, right? People who have um, uh, uh, you know, who've been, who've been uh, working in, in um, non-continuous or insecure or low-wage jobs who don't qualify. Um, under federal law, undocumented workers are not eligible for unemployment insurance. So um, that's a group that has been left out of that system. In California, we've tried to make up for it through um, other sources of funding, but, um, but that, that's definitely one of the um, real limits of unemployment insurance that you know, if we could create a better system, I think um, you know, those are the kinds of things we would have to look at. I just wanted to add, including that we need to think about how we measure unemployment. We need to really talk about that because, you know, these things are tied together, that our whole system is not one that actually is constantly thinking about how to include more people and how to help people reach their full potential. Our support systems are based on a concept of safety net rather than on a concept of steps and platforms and ladders that allow people to move up and reach their full potential and trampolines when they fall off so they can get right back on the rung. We need to rethink the whole thing and unemployment insurance is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how it's reflected that we have a distorted notion about what the public sector is there to help people do. 
Yeah, I think that relates to a number of questions that we've gotten about the idea of a universal basic income, which this, you know, the unemployment situation has kind of raised that with having basically, you know, uh, an impetus to kind of have a, a minimum wage of, of unemployment um, with the $600 extra that is no longer coming. But um, what are your thoughts on kind of universal basic income as we kind of look forward to, to improving job quality, but for those, you know, who may not have the opportunity. I'll say a little bit before Julie may have a lot more to say. I prefer the language of guaranteed income mm -hmm. rather than the focus on universal. Guaranteed income, which means that we make sure that there is a, a level of support that people can count on. And I think the examples in Mississippi and in Stockton, California of a guaranteed income working with a pilot of people who are already in an a low income bracket and the results of these pilots so far just underscore what your gut would tell you that people need money for the basics people are spending their money on the kinds of things that you would spend yours on an emergency that comes up here and there an educational opportunity i think that this is part of what we need to rethink in terms of the social contract in america yeah, I would echo that. And, you know, just to highlight that, you know, like in California, obviously, Mayor Michael Tubbs in Stockton has, uh, you know, um, uh, led piloting of these kinds of ideas. And, um, you know, I think that in California, right, we really pride ourselves on um, strong labor policies that protect uh, workers um, from, you know, minimum wages, uh, um, you know, what, you know, what the first state to, to sign a $15 minimum wage. I think that we really, you know, and local entities that have, uh, that have set even higher wages. I think that we really need, this is to Angela's point about reimagining how we think about work and about like just human security. Um, what does that look like in a society in which, you know, we don't want, nobody who's working, um, you know, full-time year round should be living in poverty. Nobody should be having to piece together life through multiple uh, you know, temporary jobs because one is not enough for them to live on. Um, I think that 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 idea of a guaranteed income is just really part and parcel of that. And as you said, you know, we've seen a, a, the pandemic has given us a lens into you know what do we need to do in the worst of times, and how do we translate that into in better times? How do we make sure that you know we're not just planning for crises all the time, but we're really planning for um, a security and uh, you know and, and a sense of place and belonging and, um, you know, and, and taking full advantage of everybody's, you know, capabilities and talent and the full diversity of what we have. Um, we've had a number of questions about caregiving and how to address equity issues, uh, you know, through systems and, you know, how, how, how you deal with caregiving in, in California. Um, what are you guys thinking about that? Well, I'm going to have to go in a second. Uh, I did comment that caregiving should be thought of as part of our basic infrastructure. We also need to understand that the caregivers uh, are so essential that they all, we need to make sure that people are making living wages, livable wages. We need to make sure that they have the care and support that they need, that they're providing to others in terms of access to health benefits and time to spend with families. We need to treat caregivers with the respect that we uh, are hoping that they will give to our children and our elders and those of us who are infirm. It is so backwards that the very people who we're looking to when we are most 
in need. We're not treating them with the respect that they deserve. It's, we're quite focused on it with the task force. Thank you. Angela, thank you so much. If you have to, if you have to uh, drop out, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Angela. That She's absolutely right. And what Angela said, both at the task force and in the Future Work Commission, care has come up as a real priority. I think we all see the need. We all see that, you know, again, we said this already, but in a pandemic, the, you know, the, the essential workforce that does this work and says, you know, we haven't been treated as essential. I think, you know, um, uh, we are really focused on addressing and care really runs the gamut, right? We're talking about they're from child care to elder care, from individual home care to residential care homes to skilled nursing facilities and the like care really um, uh, you know it, it is broad and so um, we're looking at it from all of those angles and hoping to um, launch uh, and announce a few initiatives on how to um, really take care of those who care for the rest of us thanks so much I think yeah we're out of time so I'm yeah, that has been such a great conversation. Thank you all so much. Um, Angela, Julie, Megan, terrific job. I know that there were a lot of questions that we didn't get to, um, but this has been just a fantastic conversation and I really appreciate it. We can learn so much from you as we're trying to think about how do we build our economy back to work better for working people. Um, huge thanks to the audience. We had great engagement in the, in the chat and questions on Twitter. Um, so really um, huge thanks to all of you for being with us um, and many thanks to my Aspen colleagues who do such a fabulous job behind the scenes organizing these events. So really, really so many thanks. Um, everybody, please do take a moment to um, respond to our quick feedback survey at the close of this webinar or send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you and we hope you'll join us again for our Opportunity in America discussion. Uh, thanks everybody. Bye-bye.